0: I've had a lot of encouragement over the past several weeks in preparation for this sermon. Uh, It began, well, I think it was about a month ago I spoke here. And um, following Sunday, Matt came up and addressed the congregation and expressed his concern of how the attendance had fallen off since the last time Ron spoke. And uh, that was really uplifting and then this morning, as um, we're sitting in the Sunday school room, my wife yawningly says to me, Boy, I hope you got a live one this morning. And then, then, and then Tom gets up here and begins to apologize for the fact that he will probably fall asleep on the soundboard back there. Um, I am really charged, I tell you. <laughs> I just can't wait to get into this one. So uh, I think there's still some coffee left in the Sunday school room. If anyone wants to run out and get a cup real quick before we get into the lesson, uh, otherwise you're just going to have to endure this with me. I don't know what you do remember about the last time I shared with you Sunday morning, but I kind of set the stage for uh, the thought behind the sermon, and that was prompted by a series of Sunday school lessons that we had been working on as the team teachers had uh, been going through a number of the, uh, the event of Christ as he was approaching the cross and in through the resurrection. And, uh, and I had the text that dealt where Jesus was meeting with Peter along the Sea of Galilee and raised the question, you know, uh, the question, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, um, the uh, question came out of that of another situation where Jesus was with the disciples and he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And and that kind of just sparked this whole thought of something I wanted to spend some time with. I really wanted to spend some time with um, the questions that Jesus asked of his followers, the questions that Jesus asked of his disciples. And so I began actually preparing a series of sermons because I am charged to have to go in a couple weeks to a, a camp up in Connecticut and preach nine sermons. And I've got some great material yeah, uh, they're all based upon questions that Jesus asked his disciples or those who were following him or those that he encountered along the road. So I'm telling you all this to simply say this. You're guinea pigs this morning. This is sermon number two. I only got seven more to go before two weeks pass, so uh, pray for me. But seriously... Um, I have to confess that this study isn't original, that as I began to look into it, I realized that there's actually been a number of books written on the the topic, Questions Jesus Asked. And and I also confess I haven't read any of the books. And so this is kind of ground-level scratching at some of the things that I was hoping the scriptures themselves could reveal to me. And I have to tell you, uh, as I look at a number of the questions that Jesus raised, believing that as he had the right, as he was in the place to address those around him with questions, he certainly has the right to do the same today for you and me. We, we need to listen to some of the questions that Jesus asked of his disciples and allow him to ask those same, que- same questions of you and of me. I, I was just intrigued by the fact that um, in some of the research for the, for the text and the preparation for this morning's message, that there were two or three, resor- three, two or three resources that pointed out that Jesus, just in the Gospels, there are over between 200 and 300 questions that Jesus asked. Now, given an understanding that some of those would be duplicated or replicated in the fact that the same story could be told in any one of two or three or maybe in all four Gospels. But isn't it amazing that Jesus, as a teacher, is raising all these questions? I, I found it not so much a surprise as the number of questions he raised, but I guess more importantly, why he raised those questions. It impressed me that it was the truth that Jesus was after in raising the questions. The truth not not that that he just held, but getting to the truth of what was behind the question so that the person who had to respond had to honestly deal with an answer, one way or the other. I characterize a number of these questions as I've gone through uh, the list that others have made for us of these questions that Jesus raised. I find that at times they were probing, they were searching, convicting, revealing, enlightening, inviting, and assuring. There was always something Jesus was after when he asked the question of those who would approach him. And again, I emphasize the fact that as Christ himself would raise the question, it wasn't the fact that he wanted an answer so much as he already knew what the answer would be. He wanted us to discover the answer, for us to be honest and answer honestly his questions of us. And so today I want to point us to a question that Jesus asked two men who called to him from a world of despair and darkness. And you'll find that in the gospel, well actually all three gospels, Mark, Luke, We'll this morning be reading from Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. Is that going to be projected? I guess not. Okay, let me just read it and you can follow along or open your Bibles to Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold... There were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Will you pray with me as we approach a, a time together in looking at this word of Christ? Lord, it's more than a story story. It's a lesson in life, and you would choose for us to take this time to hear you, even see what it is you want to show us. So open our eyes, Lord. Open our ears. May we see and hear what you have for us, for we pray in your name. Amen. This event, as recorded in all three Gospels, unfolds in or around Jericho. It's Jericho is about 15 miles from Jerusalem, and that's important to know, as we'll explain a little bit later. At this particular time, Jesus is only a couple of days from entering the city of Jerusalem. And he's already told his disciples, at least on three occasions, of what is ahead. And so, here he is, days away from being received as a king, and a little over a week away, to be crucified as a criminal. The pilgrimage had begun, and it was collecting men primarily and their families, Jewish men and their families, on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, as, as the Jewish law required, any male over the age of 12 living within a 15-mile radius of Jerusalem would be required to participate in Passover. There would be those, obvious, that couldn't make that trip, those who were separated from Jerusalem by distance, those who had infirmities that probably uh, limited their 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 mobility, uh, age in itself, making it maybe impossible for them to make that trip. But on the main roads, traveling to Jerusalem, there would be often the occasion those outside the perimeter of that 15-mile circle or those that didn't make the trip, whatever, would be alongside the road. And... And this watch the procession go by. Um, William Barclay does a, does a masterful job, I think, in, in just giving us an image of what is unfolding as this pilgrimage is heading toward Jerusalem. I just want to read you his statement. It was clearly impossible that such a law should be, filled, be fulfilled and that everyone should go. And I mentioned some of the reasons why that might not be possible. Those who were unable to go were in the habit of lining the streets of towns and villages through which groups of Passover pilgrims must pass to bid them Godspeed on their way. Kind of like wanting to be a part of the parade but can't. So you're just there to cheer them on. So then, the streets of Jericho would be lined with people. Jericho was also the home of many of the priests and Levites living there, awaiting their rotation of service at the temple. You had, in the thousands, priests and Levites that would serve the temple, and they would serve on a rotation basis. So many of them made their home in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem. So you would have a good number of these Levites and priests living in Jerusalem. And so you have these men who are waiting their turn to serve in the temple. They would probably soon join the pilgrimage, but not that far out since they only had just a day's, uh, less than a day's walk to go into the city. And according to our text, Jesus had attracted a crowd. Remember, up to this point, Jesus has already been recognized as a teacher with authority. Jesus has already been recognized as a rabbi, one who is, is to be to to be um, uh, held up in esteem for your knowledge and, and uh management of the truth of the scriptures. And Barclay goes on to point out that a distinguished rabbi or teacher was on such a journey, it was the custom that he would be surrounded by a crowd of people. Disciples and learners who would listen to him as he discharged the truths that were a part of his teaching. As he would walk along, people would be there in earshot to hear what the teacher had to say. This was a very common form of teaching during the time of Christ. So, you picture this crowd now walking, listening to the words of, Hanging on the words that Jesus is speaking. You, you have these people along the side of the road, which are, are, is made up of a multitude of different people from different backgrounds. And we have two very interesting guys sitting beside the road. They're blind. Why would they be sitting there beside the road? Hey, a parade's going by. The crowds are going by. This is a the time to probably get more offerings than they would get any other day of the week or even of the year. This was an opportune time for them to benefit uh, greatly from anyone that might just demonstrate at least some degree of compassion or pity upon them and drop something in their lap as far as a token uh, of helps or service. So they're sitting there, and possibly through the conversation that they are hearing in this exchange of Jesus' teaching and those those followers asking questions, they pick it up. Something special about this person is going by. Maybe out of their curiosity, by themselves asking questions, as it's recorded in Luke and also in Mark, asking, what's going on? They discover it is Jesus. And this is when it all begins to unfold. Jesus is going by. The crowd is all wrapped around what he has to share. The people along the streets are intrigued by this rabbi who is recognized throughout the land. The guys discover who it is. It's Jesus. And what do they do? Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. They're in the parade now. They want to claim a piece of it. And they want to claim a big piece of it as well. But immediately, they are rebuked by those in the crowd. They are telling them to be quiet. It's interesting. Why would these people want to silence these two beggars on the side of the road? I think there are three distinct reasons why it might be, uh, maybe all three reasons, to, to silence our beggars. There were those who were listening to the teachings as this traveling rabbi was sharing what he had to, to share, and, and the distraction was doing nothing but drowning out the very words of the master. How can we hear when these two guys are on the side of the road shouting out at the top of their lungs? And so they wanted to quiet them so they could hear what Jesus had to to share. Then there were those, and I assume it might be the disciples themselves, who just wanted to make certain that their journey, this pilgrimage, would go uninterrupted. Don't delay. We have a destination. We need to get there. And any distraction is, is really unnecessary and unwanted. So be quiet, because we have a mission. We have a direction to go. We have a place to be. But I think there's a third, third group that really has some major objections and wants this, these two beggars to be quiet. You remember what the two blind guys called Jesus? Lord! Son of David! That is interesting. And that's an immediate identity with Jesus being recognized as the Messiah. And you can bet your bottom dollar that there were some Levites and there were some priests in that crowd that day that were not real happy about Jesus being recognized as Lord, but more importantly, as the son of David, as one who was to inherit the throne, as one who was going to reestablish the kingdom as one who was to be tagged or named or titled the Messiah. They wanted to silence those guys because the last thing they wanted were other people to pick up those titles and and identify Christ in a similar manner. They wanted to put a stop to it right away. How these men learned of Jesus or coming to at least some understanding of Christ who he was and what he was all about, is probably left up just to the best guess. And I'm going to guess, if you give me the opportunity. First off, they didn't read about Jesus. They're blind. (laughs) They can't read. So it had to be by word of mouth. And it's interesting, when you read through the Gospel of Matthew alone, that prior to this encounter that these blind beggars had with Jesus, prior to that day, there are at least four recorded events where Jesus addressed the need of those who were blind. And so it would make sense that as there have been others who were healed of blindness, then maybe they were in a position also to be healed of blindness. And it's also interesting in Matthew 9, two of these men, not the ones that we're talking about, but two others who were healed with blindness also referred to Jesus as the Son of David. Isn't that interesting? How it somehow penetrated through the communities and and landed somehow in the lap of these two men, these two blind men, who would be in the presence of Christ, who could heal them and recognize them as the Son of David. I would even go so far to wonder that it could it be, just as Peter made that great confession of who Christ is, as, as God himself revealed to Peter the Messiahship of Jesus, could it have been the very Spirit of God that came upon the heart of those two blind beggars as the presence of God walked past them and the Holy Spirit revealed to them who this man really is? Regardless of the objections, regardless of the rebukes, the men cried out all the more, it's recorded for us in the Scriptures, Lord, have mercy on me, and Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. We have to imagine at this point that Jesus has already passed them. And I can imagine because of that, that second scream for the attention of the Lord had to be pretty loud because Jesus stopped. And again, as you read the the parallel Gospels, and it's reflected in, in this particular text, that the men were summoned. Jesus called them. Jesus invited them to come to him. And then the question. What do you want me to do for you? If Jesus were to ask you this question, Right now, what would your answer be as you stand in the presence of the living Savior, the Son of David, the Messiah, the soon-coming King, and he says to you, what do you want me to do for you? What would be your answer? I'm convinced that life's circumstances will most often determine what it is we ask of Jesus. Where we are right now in life, a lot of times, has a lot to say about what we want from Jesus. For these men, it was a deep desire to be able to see. The confines of blindness deprived them not only of sight, but it also deprived them of a livelihood. They were living an accursed life. They were close to the bottom rung on the ladder when it comes to status or acceptance. Their existence was totally dependent upon whatever the degree of compassion may be by those who passed them by. Their physical infirmity was their sentence to poverty, to live a life outside the acceptance of others. Not a very good place to be in life, is it? They had good reason to call on the one they believed could free them from this hopeless station in life. But their plea was for something much greater than just the ability to see. It was a request of the Lord to give them a new life. A life that they had never experienced before, but only could imagine what it might be like. If the Son of David, in his mercy, would respond to them, their request, their petition. Jesus, by his very question, was probing deeply into the hearts of these men. They wanted more than just the coinage that might have been dropped in their laps as the crowd walked by. They were looking for more than just a handout from Jesus, they were looking for his hand. They wanted Jesus to take hold of them. They called out to Jesus, the Son of David, the one who was sent to set the captives free. They wanted to experience a life that was free of darkness and would bring them into light and to be able to look for the first time into the face of one that loved them. We read in the text that Jesus, in pity, or other translations read, had compassion on them and touched them. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. I ask you again, what do you want Jesus to do for you? I just sat and thought about what these guys were doing as they were in the presence of Christ and, 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 and the simple petition of, we want to see. <laughs> I, I took that as a prayer, a simple prayer, a petition of the Lord, a request of the King, coming before Him and, and laying the soul bare. The only thing I want is to see. I want to have sight that will give me an appreciation for life itself. Approach it any way you want. These men were asking for something really, really important in life itself, not just to be able to to recognize faces or to, to, to be able to distinguish colors. They wanted to see life in its fullest. They wanted to be rescued from the life of which they were a part, and they knew that Jesus was the one that could do it, and so they petitioned him, they prayed to him in this manner. And, and as, I, as I dwelled on that, I began to recognize, on, as we go through this text, the characteristics of prayer, of how prayer should be practiced, of how these men demonstrated prayer for you and for me, and how maybe we should pray as well. The first thing they did, they acknowledged the lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, they said. They identified his deity. Son of David, they said. They put themselves where they needed to be, in the presence of God Almighty. And when we are praying, that's exactly what we are to do. We find ourselves in the presence of who? God Almighty. And what, what, what comes of that? <laughs> when you're in the presence of God, have mercy on me. <laughs> it, it, it brings you to your knees. It, it brings upon you a spirit of humility. It puts you to a place of where you recognize your unworthiness as you're in the presence of the one who is most worthy. That's where these, these blind beggars are at right this very minute as they're asking, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And, and, and they don't give up. <laughs> it's a prayer of persistence. People were trying to quiet them down. They're trying to make sure they don't just just shut up, <laughs> be quiet. They would not be rebuked. I had a couple of this quotes just grabbed me as I was going through the the I, I guess a summary of their of their position of of certainty of where they are right now as they're sitting before Christ. Public Commentary says. Faith resists opposition and triumphs over impediments. These men were overcoming opposition. And Barclay goes on to say, It often happens that we are easily discouraged from seeking the presence of God. It is the man who will not be kept from Christ who will in the end find him. Persistence. Staying with it. I don't care what the crowd says. I don't care what the world around me says. I am after Jesus. I'm after what he can give me as I call upon his name. And there's there's an identity here with these men. They're coming to Jesus with an imperfect faith. Hey, anybody here have a perfect faith? We're in good company. When When we pray to Jesus, we come as people in an imperfect faith. Their, their faith was built upon a, an understanding of a messiahship, not complete. They only saw Jesus as the one who was coming, as the son of David, to reestablish once more the, king, the kingdom of Israel. A, a kingdom of power. A kingdom of political rule. A kingdom that was going to overthrow governments of the world. But that's the only faith they knew. That's the only faith that they had. And with that little bit of faith, they, they exercised. They were in the company of the king of kings. <laughs> the king who was to establish a kingdom forever. These two blind, two blind men were grateful. How do we know that? <laughs> as soon as they were healed, what they do? They followed Jesus. They were with him <sighs> What, what, matter of fact, if, if, if you look at some of the commentaries and, and you recognize also the parallel of, of this story, in the Gospel of Mark, one of, the, one of these blind guys is named as Bartimaeus because it's believed that he was singled out as one who had a keen following of Christ and possibly even one of those who were very loyal to him even through the establishment of the church. These men were expecting their, expressing their gratitude By acknowledging what Jesus did and basically saying what you have done for us causes us to surrender our whole selves to you, and we're in it. We're in it all the way. So Jesus asks, when you pray, (laughs) what do you want me to do for you? I want to just characterize my, my own personal prayer life. And maybe you can identify with it. I have to say, sadly, that sometimes my requests of the Son of David, of my Lord, are shallow and self-serving. There are some things I want, Lord, and I want you to take care of them. My requests represent I a a diluted appreciation for how he has already blessed me. Matter of fact, sometimes my prayer is just say, Bless me, Lord, like he hasn't. Sometimes my prayers aren't acknowledging the real needs in my life, just the surface needs, the immediate needs, the things I want God to take care of right now, and I press him for it. Too often I seek the temporal over the eternal. I'm more concerned about my, my comfort in this world over the assurance in the world to come. I confess my prayer life lacks for more. Instead, I need to remember that when I'm calling on Jesus and asking him, petitioning him to come into my life, to do something with me or for me, I am giving him permission to show me how things really are. I am, I am positioning myself to be totally stripped of any pretense. To just be his, to expose myself in its full nature. The good as well as the bad. And then let him begin to work in me and change me and give me exactly what I need and not necessarily what I want. But oh, so often what I want is satisfied by the God who meets all needs. I just want to close with a list of scriptures very short as to remind you what is ours when we approach the one the Lord the son of David in prayer Jesus said and whatever you ask in prayer you will receive if you have faith jesus said and i tell you ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be open jesus said whatever you ask in my name this i will do that the father may be glorified in the son if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And James, the brother of Jesus, said, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Jesus said, For your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. So then, just as Jesus called the two blind beggars to come forward, he would ask us this day, What do you want me to do for you? Let's pray. Open our eyes that we may see. Open our ears that we may hear. And discover the fullness of all that is promised in you. And in faith, coming and believing. Not only, Lord, will you give us our sight. And not only will you open our ears. But you give us life. Life to be lived in its abundance even today and life to be lived in the fullness of joy found only in you when you come again. We say thank you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.